I just, every time I come, you know, I tell you guys that you're either going to love me or hate me at the end of the service. And that my messages that I feel that God has placed on my heart, they're not celebratory ones. They're more surgical. They're not celebratory. And so they're really, my inspiration comes, I feel, from God to cause you to think. To cause you to think. So today's message is meant to strike at the core of your being, like to go straight in to the core. In an effort to expose dysfunctions and infirmities that have kept you out of sync from the Lord's will. And it is also a call to realign your heart and your mind with his in an effort to break free from patterns and behaviors that have kept you from growing and thriving in Christ. Amen? Amen? I hope you got that. I always talk about how important it is to be in vertical alignment. Vertical alignment. Our problem today is that we're always striving to be in horizontal alignment. We want to be good with the people. We want to appeal to the people. It's like a dad or a mom who doesn't want to be a parent, they want to be a best friend. It's like the dad that says, I want to be your buddy, but I don't want to be your dad because that... That, that just requires so much more of me. Or the mom who just wants to be the daughter's you know, shopping uh, friend rather than being a mom. And so we have this tendency to want to be in alignment with the things that are horizontal. In other words, all of our friendships and family. But then we forget about the vertical one, which is alignment with God, which should be the first one. And the reason it should be the first one is very obvious. The first commandment, obviously, tells us that. And then Jesus goes on to say to love you know, God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. He says, seek first the kingdom of God, live righteously, and all things shall be added. So this is the first one. And so I feel like Christianity today has come from outside of the alignment, the vertical one, has so focused on the horizontal one. And when we live that way, we live a dysfunctional Christianity. Now, dysfunction is the opposite of function. Something that is dysfunctional is not functioning the way that it should. And so when we say dysfunctional homes, dysfunctional families, those are families that are not functioning effectively. And so dysfunction, not being in alignment with God brings dysfunction. And I have this definition up on the screen, the manifestation of dysfunction in our spiritual journey can give rise to a skewed perspective on our purpose and direction as followers of Christ. In other words, when we are dysfunctional, we don't have a clear vision. Dysfunctional Christianity creates a skewed perspective of our purpose in him. To say it just in layman terms, dysfunction breeds a distorted perspective of who we are in him. Dysfunction breeds a distorted perspective of who we are in him. That's dysfunction. Nobody wants to be in a dysfunctional home. And so I was watching one of my favorite theologians. He was on the stage with another four theologians that I highly respect and they had this forum and they had a, a room full of people. 
and they were taking questions from the crowd and, and, and one of the questions was, what is creating the greatest dysfunction in Christianity today? Because that's the key word, right? Dysfunction. And so we have to ask ourselves that question. <clears throat> At the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves lots of questions like, you know, did I live, did I love, did I make a difference? Did I show Christ to my family? Did I show Christ to the people around me? What could I have done differently? What could I change to produce a better outcome? We have to constantly reflect. And so the question here was, what is creating the greatest dysfunction in Christianity today? And this pastor, this theologian, he said two things. He says there are many things, but there are two very important ones. He says the first thing that's creating the most dysfunction in Christianity today are pastors. And I said, wait, hold it, what? He says, pastors. And they all looked at him, you know, kind of baffled and wanted to see what else he was going to say after that. He says, a lot of churches are not preaching the true gospel. They're not preaching the message of salvation in Christ. They're not. And they're doing it in an effort to appease the counterculture or to appeal to the counterculture. So I want to be like you so that you can be like us, but it doesn't work that way. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're a different kind of people. We have to understand that about ourselves, that we are part of a different kingdom. We're here for a short time. And so as, as I was listening to this, you know, I, I have to say that I, during Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, I did experience at least three different services from three different churches. And I can say I'm grateful for Pastor John that keeps it real. And the other two churches also kept it real. And I was very grateful. I said, you know, they're teaching the true meaning of, you know, the resurrection and their, the gospel. They're focusing on Christ. And I loved it. Absolutely loved it. But then I started to hear all this commotion about another church. Now, mind you, I'm not criticizing or anything like that. It might sound critical, but it's not. It's not. The Bible does say that uh, we are to beware of ravenous wolves that go around dressed in sheep's clothing. The Bible does say that. And if I don't say it, then who will, right? And so as I'm not your pastor, but I think that I have, uh, you know, Pastor John's permission, I will say that I was hearing a lot of noise about a particular church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I will not mention their name. I will say that the name transformation is in it, but I won't mention their name. I won't mention the pastor's name, although his last name rhymes with Rod, but I won't mention his name. I can only say that I was appalled by what I saw because the Easter service that they had was short from being Sam Smith's presentation of his song Unholy at the Grammys. They were singing secular music and they were moving there, as he said, their booty. This was at church. I was appalled because the message of Easter was not preached. It was terrible. It was so bad that they've already taken it down from their website. It's so bad. He said, our service is going to be on the edge of being sinful. We're going to make it real. I thought, okay. I was reminded of James 4.4, 4, conformity to the world is enmity with God. Oh boy, you guys got quiet on me. Okay, let me, let me say this again. Conformity to the world, when we try to be like the world, that's enmity with God. And so I'm standing there watching this 
and I'm standing next to a believer in Christ, a follower in Christ, and I start to comment on what I'm seeing and what I saw and how terrible it was because you lead people astray because the people in the crowd are hungry for transformation, for healing, for salvation, but they're being led astray. Now, one of the things I appreciate about Pastor John after 23 years of being here at TFC is that he's always, many, many times he said, don't take it from me, look it up in the word and make sure that I'm aligned with the word of God. Like just because I'm up here, that doesn't mean that I'm always gonna be right. And I would challenge you to do the same thing today. And so I'm standing here talking to another follower of Christ and we're talking about this and I kid you not, the moment that I'm talking about this particular pastor, my phone dings and I get a notification that that pastor had just liked one of my Instagram reels. I said, you'll never believe what just happened. I said, look, she says, oh my goodness. And then I heard a voice in the back of my head say, you're such a hater. <laughs> you're such a hater. And I said, nope, no devil, I'm not a hater. I don't hate the man. I hate what's being taught. The Bible says not to hate, but to hate evil. I hate evil. Look, I know that I might not get a big clap with that, with what I'm saying, but it's all about bringing glory and praise to God and safeguarding the hearts of all of the followers of Christ. The Bible calls us to hate evil. The Bible says in Matthew 7, 15, it says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Christians ought not to appeal to the counterculture. That's not your job. It's not, let me, let me sound like them, look like them, hang out at the same place with them so that I can bring them in to the house of God. It doesn't work that way. I had someone who came and said, brother, would you pray for me? This is a, a, a sister in Christ and said, pray for me. I've been, I've been single for 12 years and I need, I need a husband, but I need a man of God. And I've, this person has given me permission to speak truth into her life and I've coached her and counseled and, and, uh, and I said, uh, absolutely. So you're praying for a man of God. Absolutely, she said. So do you know what that man of God is praying for? A woman of God. Is that what you are? Is that what you are? We cannot try to live like the counterculture and be Christ-like at the same time. See, Christians ought to be countercultural people. Countercultural people. After all, the gospel is not just something that we think about, it's something that we live out. We are conformed to the message of the gospel, but ultimately and more specifically, we are conformed to the person of Jesus Christ in the gospel. That is who we are called to be, not to be like the world. You probably remember if you uh, went to Sunday school when you were a kid, they probably used that visual analogy of the frog in the boiling water. So if you don't know it, I'll very quickly tell you, you know, share the analogy with you. If you take a frog and you have a pot with boiling water and a pot with cold water, if you stick the frog in the cold water and then you start to increase the temperature and it slowly starts to warm up, the frog doesn't feel it. As you increase the temperature, the frog doesn't feel. It actually gets quite comfortable. And as the person continues to increase the temperature and the water starts to boil, 
The frog doesn't know that it's slowly dying. But because it's become acclimated to its environment, it's become acclimated to its environment. And so it becomes numb, desensitized, and dies. But if you take the same frog and you put the frog in a pot of boiling water, you throw it in, it'll jump right out. It'll jump right out. So what significance does that have in this message? Well, if you are living the gospel, breathing the gospel, meditating on the gospel, living the gospel, sin is boiling water. And the moment that you get quick close to it, you jump. But if you are not living and breathing the gospel, if you're not searching in God's word on your own and you just come here on Sundays, then sin will feel like the lukewarm water. Little by little, it will start to increase its temperature and then you will boil before you know it. We're not called to be part of the counterculture. We're called to be countercultural people. I had a, uh, an aspiring pastor from the valley. Earlier I mentioned where in the valley. I won't say it today, right now. Shouldn't have said it, but an aspiring pastor. And he came and he said, I need some coaching. I said, what do you need? He said, I want to have the influence and the charisma of Stephen Furtick. And I said, why? I said, have you heard the gospel he preaches? I mean, why? And some of you are probably looking at me saying, oh, no, you didn't go there. Oh, yes, I did. I don't, you don't need to like me. That's okay. I said, why would you want to be like him? I said, why wouldn't you just want to be like Christ, though? Just be like Jesus, that after 2,000 years of his resurrection, he's still influential today. Is it... Is it easier to conform to the character of Christ or is it easier to conform to the character of a person? Well, it's easier to conform to the character of a person. That's easy. You can cut your hair like him, dress like him, talk like him, but then what? You want to be like Jesus. Even when we tell our children, you read the story of David and Goliath, and then you look at your son and you say, you see, son, you need to be like David. No, no. Because David was a giant slayer, the king of Israel, a murderer, an adulterer, a liar, a thief, and a really bad dad. No, no, you say, son, you need to be like Jesus. Yeah, David and you know, Elijah and Abraham and Daniel and all those, those are good. Great examples, but they had character flaws. But Jesus never did, never has, never will. So be like Jesus. Don't be like the counterculture, amen? And so when this theologian, going back to the forum, the theologian was asked, what are those two, what are those dysfunctions? He says, there's actually two. And he says, the, sec the second greatest dysfunction, he says, that I've noticed in the body of Christ because of the counterculture, he says, everybody's upset. There's a lot of anger, a lot of resentment, a lot. I just recently, if you, don't, if you don't know me, aside from being a therapist, I'm also a head of school and I run a Christian school. And last week we hosted, this is not a political rant, you don't have to say amen, boo, or anything, okay? But I got a phone call two weeks ago from the governor's office and said we would like for the governor, we would like for you to host a meeting for the governor to talk about school choice. I said, come on over. 
So last week we had Governor Abbott in our gym building and we hosted that conference. We had a packed house. All while outside we had protesters, <laughs> outside of a Christian school, which is fine. It comes with the territory, right? You're not going to be liked. And if you are liked, something's wrong. Because that means you're speaking their language. And so we're in here talking about school choice. And, um, <laughs> and my son, my oldest son, is keeping guard of the gate. And he's out there. And he's sitting somewhere in the crowd. I won't point him out because he'll say, Dad, please don't do that. <laughs> he's a big guy. And he's standing guard there at the gate. And I said, so how did it go out there with all the protests? He said, Dad, just stood there with a smile. I said, you did? He says, yeah, Channel 5 was out there. <laughs> you know, the cameras were there. He says, Dad, we're a Christian school. We're a Christian school, he says. We, you know, we, we can't be that person. We're a Christian school. So I'm out there. I'm just saying, ladies and gentlemen, please open up and let people in. Please just open up, you know. Don't put the signs on our fence, please. Thank you so much. He says, because we're still believers in Christ. He says, so we have to show Christ even to them. And so the second greatest dysfunction in the body of Christ is Resentment, anger, bitterness, ultimately unforgiveness. And that's what I want to talk about the second half, unforgiveness. And you're like, ah, that doesn't speak to me, right? Because I've forgiven everyone except my mother-in-law. <laughs> well, then that means that you are unforgiving. Yeah. Unforgiveness is a choice to hold on to past hearts and grievances and refuse to let go on offense and to seek retribution against the offender. And unforgiveness stems from a desire to control or a fear of becoming vulnerable, which eventually leads into a negative, a cycle of negative emotions, which of course hinders your spiritual growth. And so you know there's unforgiveness in a marriage relationship. Now listen to me. You know there's unforgiveness in a marriage relationship when, you ready? Okay, no you're not. When you have evidence of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Not the ones that are described in the Bible. The four horsemen of the apocalypse in marriage are a critical spirit, defensiveness, stonewalling, and contempt. Yeah, write it down. I think it's up there somewhere. Maybe had it somewhere over there. Do you have it up there on the screen? The four horsemen of the apocalypse, critical spirit, defensiveness, stonewalling, contempt. The last one, contempt, that's the worst one of all. That will send you into a spiral, a death spiral. The first three, if the first three are evident or, or visible in the marriage situation there, they can still, marriage can still be salvaged. But if you have the last one, which is a, an extreme feeling of disgust towards the other person, then there's really not, nothing much you can do. But when these are evident in a marriage relationship, you know that there are issues with unforgiveness. Forgiveness is a choice that we make. It is, it, is, it is an act of the will. It's like love. Do you just wake up and look at your spouse and go, I love you? You don't. You don't. Not in the morning, though. You have to choose. You say, I don't feel like loving you today. Love is not a feeling. Imagine if Jesus had said that up on the cross. I don't feel like it. It was a choice. Forgiveness is a choice. I said this earlier today, and I won't point out my wife because she's sitting in the back, but I won't point her out. The reason she sits in the back is because she doesn't want me to point her out if she doesn't come up to the front. But we have given ourselves permission to every once in a while to say, I love you, but I don't like you today. 
And that's okay. Because liking is an emotion. Loving is a choice. And so believers in Christ that refuse to forgive because they want to hold on to a grudge, you know, when you're holding on to something, your fists are clenched. And when your fists are clenched, you can't open them up to receive. And so we're going around like this all the time. When believers in Christ refuse to forgive, they lose their peace, they lose their ability to love, they lose their spiritual growth and their walk with God, they lose their testimony. You know, it's, it's like being at the supermarket and a lady cuts in front of you or a guy and you get all bent out of shape and you get ugly and then you run into that person at church. And you, want to, and, and you want to witness to them and they're like, shut up, you know? I saw you. Aren't you the one from H-E-B? You lose your testimony. You lose your health and your vitality. And ultimately, you lose your joy. I'm gonna talk a little more about health and vitality. Forgiveness is an act of the will. It's not carnal, it's spiritual. 100%. Max Lucado said, forgiveness is unlocking the door to set someone free, realizing that you were the prisoner. I'm going to say it again. Forgiveness is unlocking the door to set someone free, realizing that you were the prisoner. In my experience, as a therapist, I've yet to encounter an individual who harbors unforgiveness, resentment, and anger, and simultaneously enjoys good health and vitality. Never. Did you get what I just said? Okay. I have yet to witness or to meet someone who is holding on to resentment, who is angry, who is bitter, and enjoys good health and vitality. Now, the counterpart, I've met people who are sick but have an amazing attitude and they're able to go through life even with that burden and still reflect the love of Christ. Okay, I've seen that. But I've never seen someone who is bitter and angry and live healthy and with vitality. Because unforgiveness is rooted in pride and self-righteousness. Unforgiveness impacts your prayer life. It opens the door to the enemy. It opposes God's will. It's rooted or it's proof of a hardened heart. It prevents individuals for, from experiencing God's fullness in their life. It becomes bitterness, eventually affecting your health. It immobilizes a hand of God and it's fueled by resentment. That's unforgiveness. Ephesians 4, 31, 32 says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ has forgiven you. One could argue that a person reaches the pinnacle of malevolence, the pinnacle of malevolence when they choose to harbor resentment toward another person. That's like the pinnacle. That's when you know they're evil. Man, everybody's quiet. I told you this wasn't going to be a celebratory one. 
I used an example a while back and I'll use it again today. Hopefully it'll help you see more of a visual analogy. When I take this cup and I hold it out to the side and if I ask you how heavy it is, you'll say 10 ounces, which is about accurate, 10 ounces. Kind of measuring the size of the cup, the contents, 10 ounces. But if after an hour I'm holding this cup and, I, and you ask me how does it feel, I'll say it feels like a pound. After three hours, I'll say it feels like five pounds and my arm starts to hurt, my back, my neck. I'm starting to get grumpy, anxious, bothered. And if I hold this thing up for 24 hours, by the end of the day, if I'm able to stay in the same position, somebody will have to actually pull it out of my hand and I'll probably need therapy for my hand because my fingers will actually go through what is called atrophy of the muscles. And so I won't be able to move them. I will need help. My arm will hurt. It will become debilitated. My back will hurt, my neck, my head, and I will be in a really bad emotional state. What does that have to do with anything? Well, that's a, it's a comparative analysis of what happens when you hold on to resentment. If you hold on to it for 30 seconds, it only hurts this much. You hold on to it the rest of your life and it causes atrophy in your spirit. Handicap. It changes you. And what does it depend on? The length of time that you hold on to it. That's what it depends on. Time. Willingness. Are you willing to let go? So unforgiveness, listen, unforgiveness doesn't change the heart of others. It only changes yours. Unforgiveness doesn't change the heart of others. It only changes yours. And, and when we're talking about the heart, we're talking, of course, about the spirit. But I will also delve into the cardiovascular health, too. And so the biology of unforgiveness, which one of my favorite topics, it's the physiology of unforgiveness. What happens when people choose to hold a grudge? What happens to the body? Well, there's something that is called the HPA axis, and you have the parasympathetic nervous system, or the sympathetic nervous system, and the HPA axis, which is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Yeah? <laughs> Say that five times. <laughs> hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So when you have these two, when someone is what they call going into fight or flight mode or freeze, because they're stressed out, they're angry, they're driving down the road and someone cuts them off and they, you know, they set off a reaction call, they, they hit the HPA axis, the sympathetic nervous system, and they're, they, they're, they send a message down to their adrenal glands, the adrenal glands secrete a thing called cortisol, uh, the, the stress hormone, it goes into your bloodstream, it causes heart palpitations, tunnel vision, cold sweat, it tightens your neck muscles and you're ready to fight. Yep. You know, you've been there. <laughs> oh no, you didn't right? You've been there. You know what I'm talking about. And so you get tight. Some people fight, some people fly away, they run, others freeze. And poor kids that go home to an abusive home, they're at school and that's their only safe haven, then they come home to an abusive home and they go immediately into fight, flight, or freeze. And these are kids that grow up and develop autoimmune disease because they were never treated, okay? Was that Donkey Kong? Okay, um, took me back to when I was nine years old. And so, 
hypothalamic pituitary adrenal uh, reaction causes many, many things. And this is, this is, of course, the stress hormone is when we choose to hold on to something, we're always peaking in our cortisol. The opposite of cortisol is oxytocin. Oxytocin is the love hormone. That's the one that, you know, babies uh, create when, when they, they, they're born and, and the mom hugs them really close to her chest. Then the oxytocin kicks in and they relax. That also happens to adults. When people hug and oxytocin is created, stress hormone is, is, is uh, decreased. So when you're angry, cortisol is always high. And so what does that cause? Autoimmune or immune suppression. Autoimmune disease. Crohn's. Graves, Hashimoto's, diabetes type 1, ulcerative colitis, uh, arth certain forms of arthritis, a rheumatoid arthritis, and so on and so forth. Now, I'm not saying that if you are in one of these categories, which there are like 40 plus, if you're in one of those categories that you're a hateful person, I am not saying that. It could definitely be genetics, complete genetics, but that's only 25% of the population. The other 75 that are in the hospital today, it's because they were abused and they, haven't, they really don't know how to process. Nobody taught them how to process, how to regulate. They are dysregulated. And so you have a lot of people in the hospital today that are dysregulated. What is killing people, literally, physically, what is killing people in the hospital today? Why is there cardiovascular disease like on the high? Uh, diabetes type 1 on the high, why on the rise? What is killing them? Anyone? Stress, which causes... Inflammation. Inflammation is killing people. Causes cancer and all these autoimmune diseases. How can that be controlled? By regulating your emotions and coming into alignment with God. Being like Christ. 75% of the people, and this is not anecdotal. This is based on research. The Mayo Clinic says that 50% of the patients that they see, and because they do a holistic, kind of a holistic approach, mind, body, spirit, 50% of the patients that are terminally ill have issues with unforgiveness. Wow. And so you go to the doctor, and, and if you're a doctor, hey, we love you. So don't take this the wrong way, but here's the problem. You go to the doctor, and the doctor says, so what's hurting? Well, I've, I've got, uh, I don't know, migraines, or I've, I've got back pain, or I've got this, or stomach, or, okay. Let's run a CAT scan, an MRI, a PET scan, whatever. Here's a pill, or here's a treatment. They never ask Tell me about your childhood. Tell me about your upbringing. Tell me about the possible traumas that you endured. Tell me about some of the things that you're still holding on to. Tell me about some of the things that hurt you. They don't ask those questions because they only have 15 minutes. It's, come on, here's a pill, go. If you take the time, and I have some really good friends, you know, and Dr. Daisy over there uh, in, in Westlaco, boy, she'll listen to you. But that's like the outlier. That's the problem, is that we're harboring resentment and we're getting sick, sick. And so you, you know that you have an issue when you hear people say, my blood runs cold when I see that person. That person makes my skin crawl. Every time I see that person, I get a sick feeling in my Seeing that person makes me feel physically ill. That person makes my heart sink. Seeing that person makes me feel queasy. Every time I see that person, I feel a wave of disgust. If that's you, man, you need help. 
You can look me up, but I have a long waiting list, so don't call me. I can't help you today. But you need help, honestly, if that's the way that you are feeling. Now, when it comes to, I didn't share this in the first service, when it comes to personality types, if you are more on the side of agreeableness, if you score high on agreeableness, or you score high on conscientiousness, you're more prone to developing these diseases. The conscientious one, because they hold everything in, they overanalyze. They're anal retentive thinkers. Yeah, some of you got that. That sounds kind of gross. I'm going off to lunch right now. Um, they hold it all in right here. I have a gut feeling, you know, and they won't, they won't let go. Worst case scenario, glass half empty. What if? Overthinking, ruminating, on and on and on and on. They score high on conscientiousness. And then the ones that are agreeable... Those are the ones that don't know how to say no. They're people pleasers. They don't want to let anyone down. They overcommit. They say yes, 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 yes to everything. Those are the ones that are score highest on autoimmune disease because of their personality types. So come into alignment with God's will, with God's word. Not with the world. Not with the world. Come into alignment with God's word. Amen? Amen. I love it when I, when I, in a session, I see the proverbial light bulb go off in that person. You just see it where they go, I got it. I know where this is coming from. And I have a flashback of when they were five years old or eight years old. They go, I know where this, I know who hurt me now. I know what happened. Okay, so now we can process this. I love seeing that proverbial light bulb and I love hearing them say this. I feel so much lighter it's like a burden was lifted off of my shoulders. That, I hear that all the time. You go, yes, because that burden, that resentment, that anger that you're carrying with you is a weight. It's a heaviness that you're carrying with you. God doesn't want you living life that way. Jesus already paid for it all on the cross. You have to make that choice. Peter asked, how many times do I forgive? Jesus said, he said, seven times, Lord. He said, no, seven times. 70. That wasn't a mathematical computation. He was saying, you forgive once and again and again and again because Jesus understood how complicated unforgiveness can be in the mind and in the spirit and in the body of an individual. The Bible goes on to say, before leaving an offering at the altar, seek your brother and seek reconciliation. In other words, you are rendered unfit to worship if you're holding on to something. It doesn't matter how loud you sing, how high you raise your hands. If you're holding on to something and you're hating on something or someone, before you come to the altar to bring your worship, make sure that you reconcile with your brother and sister. Now listen, I'm not saying go to the perpetrator that hurt you and go say, I forgive you. I'm not saying that. That would be a very foolish thing to do. What I'm saying is forgive. Go before the Lord and forgive. Well, but I won't forgive until they come and ask me for forgiveness. Guess what? That's not happening. Because for some of you, that person that hurt you is already dead. And so if you're waiting for someone to come and say, please forgive me, it's not happening. That's not what Jesus taught us. He wasn't on the cross saying, Father, forgive them because someone came and said, Jesus, forgive me. Right. 
Because he who has been forgiven forgives. He who has been extended grace extends grace. Who has been shown mercy shows mercy. That is what we're called to do. Jesus said in Luke 17, 1, it's impossible for offenses not to come your way. You're going to have multiple opportunities to become offended. The difference between you and the world is how you process those emotions. And the way that you process those emotions will determine your overall outcome and how you live your life. There are areas in the world called blue zones. How many of you are familiar with what blue zones are? Anyone? One. Okay. We've been reading the same stuff. Blue zones are, for example, Okinawa in Japan. That is a blue zone. That is an area in the world in which people live to be 120. No cancer, no diabetes, no nothing. They don't wear glasses. They see well. They live to about 120. That's called the blue zone. And they have discovered the secret. Blue zones are free of what? Stress. They're free of stress. They're isolated communities. They're free of stress. They know how to process and all these things. Those are the blue zones. I want to be able to live like I lived in a blue zone, but in a gray zone. <laughs> because of Christ. Unforgiveness is the enemy's weapon of choice. I shared this quote a while back and I'll share it again. Unforgiveness binds you to your past. Unforgiveness poisons your present. And unforgiveness cancels God's blessings for your life. I told you it wasn't going to be celebratory. I'm wrapping up here. I know I'm over my time. But I want to say this. <laughs> I want to say that when I'm having issues, I'm closing, when I'm having issues with letting go of something, which I'm not tooting my own horn, but I want to say I really don't have a whole lot of issues letting go. I was taught early on by my parents not to hold grudges, even before coming to know the Lord. My grandpa would say something that I shared earlier today. My grandpa would say something that made no sense to me back in the day because just didn't. He would say something in Spanish because he lived outside of Monterrey in a small little town, Arriba Los Tigres, um, outside of Monterrey. <laughs> and, uh, and he would say this. I'm going to say it the way he said it, okay? So please, I'm not, I'm not apologizing. I'm just letting you know. He would say, Mijo, no coma huevado. Translated, don't, <laughs> don't eat while you're angry. I'm going to share something that's very profound, okay? This is really going to blow you away. You can go to the healthiest store. You can go to Whole Foods and buy the best organic food. You can balance your carbs. You can do everything beautifully and eat with a resentful spirit an angry heart, harboring unforgiveness. And that food is going to form toxins in your body. Now, I'm not saying this because it's not, again, it's not anecdotal. This is based on research. My grandpa knew nothing about, he didn't know why he was saying what he was saying, but he just knew because of experience, right? But now there's proof. You can buy the best food, organic food, and eat while you are angry and upset, and that will form a toxin in your body. But... 
If you have a happy heart, just like the Bible says, a merry heart does good like medicine, but a bitter one crushes the bones. If you have a happy heart, you can go to McDonald's and eat a Big Mac and fries and it'll be healthier for you than eating the, the other food with an angry heart. Now, mind you, I don't eat at McDonald's and I'm not encouraging you to do so. And so in closing now, my second closing, I seriously am closing now. When I'm having a hard time, I just go to the cross. I go to Golgotha. I go to the skull. And I picture Jesus up on the cross, nailed to it, after being beaten with the cat of nine tails, 39 times times nine, 351 times, 351 lashes. He was unhuman-like, unrecognizable. The skin was torn off of his body. You could see tendons. It wasn't a pretty sight. It's not the Jesus that you see in posters and pictures that looks like a, you know, a California surfer dude. That's not the Jesus I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Jesus from the Bible. That he was bruised. He was spit on. He suffered. And so I take myself to that place at that time and I see Jesus hanging from that cross and, and I rehearse those words. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And I remind myself, nobody asked for forgiveness. Nobody did. The thief on the cross, he said, Lord, will you remember me? He says, I will. He didn't even ask for forgiveness. He just said, Lord, would you remember me? Nobody. The centurion that had an epiphany, a revelation, when he saw me, says, truly, this is the Son of God. Neither did the centurion get on his knees and say, forgive me, Jesus. But Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. And so I'm reminded of that every time I'm struggling with letting go of something. I'm there, I see it, I want to experience that moment, and I see Jesus because I am a visual learner. And when it gets really, really, really tough, and I'm driving I won't do that at a supermarket, at an H-E-B. When I'm driving or I'm alone, I just start to sing. And I sing that song, Jesus paid it all to him I Sin has left a He washed me white as snow. And I repeat that. I repeat that over and over and over and I think about the great exchange, the great exchange. Jesus on the cross. For my sins, the great exchange. <clears throat> Everyone likes to end a message with five points, right? So I got your five points. <laughs> and then I'll pray benefits of forgiving others hopefully by now you know but number one it aligns you with God's will it frees you from bondage of sin it fosters reconciliation it demonstrates God's love and it brings glory to God I don't think you need more than that amen yes give God praise So I want to pray for you.
all that God is seeking in you is a heart of repentance, a contrite and humble spirit. That's it. He's not interested in your accolades. He's not interested in what you drive, where you live, how many degrees you have. He, does, he doesn't care about that. He's only looking for a humble and a contrite spirit, repentance. Repentance is true repentance when there's evidence of transformation. It's like, Lord, I repent. I've been holding a grudge. I've been holding on to resentment. I've been angry. I repent. There should be transformation. If there is no transformation, it wasn't true repentance. So always connect the two. Repentance equals transformation. So as I pray right now, I just want you to close your eyes, please bow your heads, and just think about this for a moment. What is it exactly that you are still harboring in your hearts? Think about it. What are you still harboring in your hearts? What are you holding on to? Who are you holding on to? Perhaps that person has already died and you're still hurt. You don't have to go and find the perpetrator to forgive. You simply forgive. You let go and you let God take over. And so think about it right now and then I'm going to pray. Think about it. Who is it? What is it? Who are they? What are they? And then with humility and repentance go before him. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. Thank you, Father, that you have shown us the maximum expression of forgiveness up at Golgotha on the cross. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you that we can now live because of him. Thank you, Father, that every day your mercies are new. Thank you that every day is a new opportunity, a blank slate. Thank you, Father, that every day we are reminded that you take our sins and you cast them as far as the east is from the west and that you cast them into the depths of the sea to remember them no more. Thank you, Lord, that you do not remember our sins. Father, we know that it is through Jesus that we have salvation. We know that it is recognizing him as Lord and Savior that gives us the hope of eternal life. But we also know that what you ask of us is a humble and contrite spirit. So, Father, we come before you today. And I don't speak for my brothers and sisters. They speak for themselves and you know their hearts. But, Lord, I pray that we would come to you with a contrite spirit, a humble heart, a heart of repentance and saying, Father, Please, like the prodigal son, please forgive me for I have sinned against you. Cleanse me, O oh Lord. Make me new again. I pray that my brothers and sisters would decide today as they leave to live a different kind of life. A life that is pleasing to you. That they would be countercultural people and not try to live like the counterculture, that they would stand up firmly and walk in the steps of Christ. So Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters as they leave today, that you would speak to them in their time of prayer, in their time of devotion, in their time of meditation, Lord, that you would speak to them, that you would paint a picture in their hearts and in their minds of what it is exactly that they're harboring. And that once they've done that, that they would find a need for Jesus. They would ask, simply ask Jesus to come in 
and to become their Lord. But Father, I do not want to accelerate the process. We allow you to work in their lives today that you would speak to them and do your will. So Father, we thank you today for your word, for your goodness, and for your grace. In Jesus' name, and everybody says amen.